0: If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to
1: them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent working out of DC for McClatchy. And I'm Daniel Malloy,
0: politics editor at Ozzy, subbing in for Andrea Drush, who is visiting the sovereign nation of Texas this week.
1: It is a sovereign nation. I took two years of Texas history, I know that. This week, we wanted to take a look at a blue-district seat Republican who might just keep his place in Congress.
0: I know the district knows me well. They know what type of representative I am. They know that I'm always going to call it honest, no matter which party is
1: in control.
0: That's Carlos Carbello. and you just heard him talking to McClatchy reporter Katie Glick about
1: his values. Katie will be joining the show to talk about what it takes to be a middle-of-the-road Republican in a blue district and how Corbello is known as an independent Republican as he's taken sides opposite President Trump. Then we're going to have Jamie Harrison on the show. He's an associate chair
0: and counselor with the Democratic National Committee, better known as the DNC. He's also the former
1: chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. He'll join us from there. We'll be talking about whether or not it really is the year of color for the Democratic Party. All right. You ready, Daniel? Let's do it. Does it ever seem to you that
0: President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't
2: let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared and fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again.
1: So we wanted to bring on Katie Glick, our politics reporter extraordinaire. She had spent some time recently in South Florida Congressional District, Florida 26, which is really a Democratic-leaning district, the rare Democratic-leaning district in 2018, in a place that Democrats feel like they have to win if they have any chance at winning the House. And, Daniel, it, it really presents interesting questions for both parties, I think.
0: Yeah, Alex, this is a really interesting case where you have a strong incumbent who's really sort of tacked to the middle, criticizing Trump on things like immigration, introducing a carbon tax bill and speaking out about climate change.
2: Enough of the demagoguery. Enough of the factless conversation. Let's focus on how human beings are contributing to it. And let's try to make the situation better.
0: And he's basically trying to show his voters that he is not just a generic Republican at a time when it seems like the Democrat running in the race who he's likely to face is, is just playing up her affiliation with the Democratic Party in the hopes that the blue wave can carry her to victory. Being a generic Democrat in South Florida is a loser. People want to know who you are and what you believe in beyond your party language.
1: So Katie Glick, politics reporter, extraordinaire for McClatchy, my colleague, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me back. Always great to join you.
1: You know, Katie, you were there. You spent some time with both candidates. And I think one of my takeaways from your story was this, whether it's explicitly stated or not, this belief among Democrats and maybe Debbie Mercosur herself that You know what? In a good year for Democrats, all she needs to be in a Democratic leaning district like Florida 26, just tell people that she's a Democrat and that's enough. Is it enough? You you tell us.
3: It is certainly a central part of her strategy. So I spend a good amount of time with with both candidates um, and Debbie McCarcel Powell. She is someone who really, really leans into her party ID. And that's uh, in contrast to a lot of other candidates that, that I think you and I have both spent time with who are running in what should be, at least on paper, more traditionally competitive districts where there's split between Republicans and Democrats. and You, you often see candidates in those kinds of districts emphasizing their interest in bipartisanship. In this instance, we're seeing uh, the likely Democratic candidate really, really lean hard into party ID, not afraid to embrace Nancy Pelosi, not afraid to mention at every turn that she is a Democrat. This is, on paper, a blue district, and and so it it should go Democratic. So at the same time, though, the candidate that she's running against is, of course, the incumbent, Congressman Carlos Cabello, is actually considered to be one of the stronger Republican incumbents this side. Michael, and he is doing everything he can to blunt the uh, national dynamics that, that suggest a challenging environment for Republicans. And, you yeah, there are some signs on the ground that, that at least some voters do see a distinction between Cabello and uh, the rest of the national party led by Donald Trump.
1: Now, I, I take it that the, the sort of Democratic campaign against Carlos Cabello, when it really begins in earnest, is, is going to be tried to minimize those, those differences. How do you think that they will approach that strategy what what kinds of issues do you think they're they're going to talk about
3: yeah. Well, we're already seeing it. You know, the Democratic argument against Corbello is that he talks a moderate game in Miami, but when it comes to his votes in Washington on the big stuff, whether that's tax reform, whether that's repealing Obamacare, he is voting with his party, and that vote party is voting with Donald Trump's wishes and campaign promises. And so you know, they are really trying to cast him as someone who's a smooth talker, but doesn't actually deliver on progressive priorities that, that would be better aligned with this heavily Democratic district. So that's their argument.
0: So, Katie, considering all of the factors that go against Curbelo and, and the blue tinge of this district, do Republicans understand the challenge that they're facing there right now?
3: They do. There is an awareness that even though Corbello is considered one of the more independent members of the Republican caucus and is someone who has uh, made pretty significant efforts to carve out a relatively independent profile, so they are aware that this is the most Democratic district held by a Republican, and that in a district like this, Donald Trump is extraordinarily toxic. They are aware that Democrats across the country, and certainly in Florida, are activating in in a way that we did not see in 2016. And they are aware that some of Cabello's votes, especially on, on things like Obamacare repeal, may not be in step with it, at least where some Democratic activists in the district are. So they're aware there is certainly a lot of liberal motivation and mobilization. But at the same time, um, they do see Cabello as one of their stronger incumbents.
0: Is, is Cabello speaking of those people? Is he getting the Trump people on his side at this point?
3: You know, that's a really good question. He's working a really fine line on Trump. Um, we've asked him several times, do you want the president to come and campaign with you? And you know, he is someone who says, you know, well, you know, if anyone wants to come work with me and support me on the issues I care about, the environment, immigration, uh, then glad to do it. But uh, at the same time, he's been quite critical of Trump. And, you know, that, that is important in this district that is so heavily Democratic uh, as well.
1: To y'all's point just then, I mean, I, I was just talking with a Republican operative, actually, who, who mentioned to me the only thing that actually matters, in his view, in midterm elections anymore is just rallying the base, that the universe of persuadable voters is so small that it simply doesn't matter if you try to reach across the aisle. What matters most is trying to motivate your base, and, and that can be a problem for lawmakers like Carlos Cabello, another one of our ground game districts, Jeff Denham, who has tried to move to the Center on Immigration. You know, he performed really poorly on in California's uh, primary day, which, of course, is a strange system. It's top two. But he only got something like 41 percent of the vote because this little known underfunded Republican challenger who is a hardliner on immigration really ran to the right of him. And it's a question whether or not in the general election he's going to receive some of that support that he's really going to need in a battleground district like that, you know, to sort of broaden the discussion here you know we've mentioned that four to 26 is absolutely a must-win district for democrats do we feel like in the current political environment do we think that things are are turning a little bit against republicans right now i mean there's some discussion about that among some democratic pollsters and some republicans frankly that the last the last month of polling has been tough katie what what, what are you hearing about that what do you think
3: well, broadly speaking, and Alice, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. Um, no doubt that Republicans will tell you that the tracking numbers that they're looking at look worse in this last month than they did previously, and they chop that up to a whole variety of reasons, whether that was some foreign policy challenges for the president, uh, failure again to get immigration reform done, and all the controversy over family separations. But no doubt that Republicans on the whole are feeling extremely nervous, especially about that House map. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are a number of Republican incumbents who are maybe feeling a little better than, than, than others. You know, you look at a Cabello, for example, who is someone who did not get outraised um, by his Democratic opponent, but a lot of Republicans did get outraised by their Democratic opponents, and that is, you know, even further contributing to, to this sense of unease and, you know, the challenge, broadly speaking, in this national environment. You know, and, and to just, quickly go back to the federal race for for just a minute. You know, I think it's going to be a really good test of, A, just how bad is this environment? And B, you know, does personality matter? Does strong, relatively more independent profile matter in a really tough environment? Or you kind of get knocked out in, in a wave.
1: That's such a good question. That's why Florida twenty six was such a good district to really dive deep into. Daniel, you know, my question that Katie and I are talking about federal races, I want to know about the Georgia governor's race, which has really become... Something that's attracted a lot of attention nationally in the last month. Some polling there recently suggests, I mean, it is kind of a neck and neck race in in Georgia. I mean, do you think that Republicans are feeling the heat there as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Part of it is that Democrats got the candidate they wanted, I think, in Brian Kemp out of that runoff. He
1: certainly to the right, positioned himself to the right of Casey Cable. Pretty far to the right in, some, yeah, <laughs> in, in yeah. some cases. I mean, he was the one who had, it was the, the the immigrant bus. So
0: those are two different issues, Alex. This is Georgia politics for you. So there was a, a fringe candidate in the primary who had an immigrant bus who was going around the state saying, get on the bus and I'll take you to Mexico. Uh, Brian Camp responds to this by saying, I'll just put him in the back of my pickup truck and take him there myself. So it was sort of a, uh, a second tier deportation bus, if you will.
1: Thank you for explaining um, that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so it is interesting. And, and Stacey Abrams, you know, we're talking about base turnout. Um, you know, she is, that's her whole strategy is my base is going to be bigger than your base. And I'm going to prove it by by going to the left on a lot of things and, and ginning up my earning turnout and, and sort of counting on the fact that there are a growing number of minorities in Georgia, and that there are enough sort of white liberals essentially to give over the finish line, rather than playing to that you know, mythological sort of middle of the road, you know, Reagan Democrat type person, of which there seem to be fewer and fewer these days. And playing to them as someone like Michelle Nunn did in 2014, who we we well remember, risks like not getting that kind of turnout that you need from the base. So she's got a base strategy. It's pretty clear that Brian Kemp has a base strategy uh, on the Republican side and expect to see Donald Trump back, expect to see Mike Pence back there uh, as well. I guess Pence went during the primary, Trump did not go, but he just tweeted. I would say, too, that's an interesting factor in Georgia right now is a number of 2020 Democrats who are starting to sort of creep down there. And so you can expect to see some of the folks who uh, are talking about running in a couple of years maybe show up uh, on behalf of Stacey Abrams. If You look around at the uh, dozens of Democrats at this point who are considering running for president.
1: So, you know, I mean, given this broader context, Katie, what is the Curbelo strategy to overcome it?
3: You know, there certainly is a recognition, at least among his supporters, that this is an extremely tough environment for any Republican, really, but especially a Republican running in such a heavily Democratic district. And so they are working to keep some of their Democratic supporters that they've had in the past in the fold. Um, They are emphasizing issues like immigration, like climate change, and, you know, immigration reform, uh, you know, the language that he uses is very different than the language you're going to hear on, on that issue from Brian Kim for example. Um, and so, um, you know, they, they're really working to cast him as a centrist, someone with an independent profile in the mold, say, of an Eliana ross Leighton from Florida 27, next door, who is really an icon in in South Florida politics. Uh, she's, of course, the, the retiring congresswoman. Uh, but the question is, you know, Cabello, he's only running for his third term. Does he have that stature yet? You know, not everyone perhaps sees him in that role just yet. And so he's really trying to cast himself with someone with an independent profile, but at the same time, that's really going to be put to the test uh, in this environment, no doubt.
1: I mean, I feel like there's an interesting juxtaposition within the GOP that we've just kind of stumbled upon here. We're talking about Carlos Corbello, who more first and foremost wants to be seen as a moderate immigration. Meanwhile, the Georgia gubernatorial nominee in the state just to the north of Florida has a different approach. I mean, that's the challenge for someone like Curbelo, right? Because I hey, look, maybe obviously voters in Florida 26 aren't paying especially close attention to the Georgia governor's race, but that is kind of what the Republican party more and more, particularly in the time of Donald Trump, is associated with this hardline position on immigration. It's just a it's a tough it's a tall, a tall order for someone like Curbelo to the distance. I mean, like we, we talk about it. he is a strong incumbent, but it's not like he's been there for 30 years. Right. either. You know, I mean, it, it is hard to build up a reputation like that, even even if you've been in there for six year, or so years.
3: Well, and his likely opponent is making the argument that the vast majority of his caucus is much more in the line of the Georgia Republican, we were just talking about, than, than they are, uh, you know, with Ileana S. and that, you know, even if Corbellus does, he cares about issues like immigration reform and climate change, he cannot deliver in that kind of caucus. And so it's better to just elect a bunch of Democrats who all care about these issues, and, and then maybe there's a hope of sort of delivering more. So uh, you are certainly seeing the argument, you know, having Democrats take back the House and, and for having that effort begin in districts like Florida 26. So
0: we'll see you. So, Katie, in your your time spent down in South Florida, as well as the other reporting you've done around the country, what do you think is sort of the state of the House map right now? and, And how does this race kind of fit into the larger picture of where we see Republicans heading into the fall?
3: national Republicans are very worried. Ohio 12, which is sort of the latest closely watched special election, it is yet another district uh, that has long been strong Republican territory and all of a sudden is extremely competitive. And so, you know, even if we do have uh, some districts, the David Valadeos of the world, the Carlos Cabela's of the world, where the Republican incumbent, you know, isn't getting at raise, you know, is it, perceived by their party to be a little bit stronger. There's also a host of other races around the country, uh, that are in very competitive territory where, you know, Republican candidates are getting outraised and, and, and the party is really feeling like, like the environment, at least at this moment, has turned against them. Now, of course, they will always offer the caveat that, you know, we are still, you know, you know, what is it, two and a half months out from election day, maybe a little bit more. And so much can change. We don't know what the dominant narrative is going to be in October. And so, uh, you know, especially given uh, the, the intensity of the news cycle these days. But, but at this particular moment, as we talk, a whole lot of anxiety that that House map.
1: Okay. Hey, Katie, thank you as always for coming on the show.
3: Thank you guys so much. Good to talk to you.
1: So uh, it's fascinating to hear about a Republican like Carlos Corbello really trying to battle this national environment. Like we mentioned, maybe a national environment that is getting worse for Republicans right now and try to stake out their own individual identity. It's not easy. It's not easy, Daniel, to, to do that.
0: No, Alex, it isn't, and it's. I think this is this is a great example of 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 why the the ground game series is so important because we're really digging into you know sort of the the quintessential race for this and just sort of really interesting part of the country in South Florida and a, a candidate who among the Trump skeptics in the GOP those who are still running anyway he's he's at the forefront. So recently on Ozzy, we had a piece uh, about how twenty eighteen may be the year of color even more than it's the year of the woman. Uh, and we're talking about sort of the new infrastructure that's in place for candidates of color across the country this year, whether it's PACs and fundraising opportunities, and, and kind of how they're they're forming communities and helping each other out. Whether you see mutual endorsements in the in the case of Abdul El Sayed in Michigan and Chuy Garcia in. Illinois. And what you're seeing is is a lot of surprising victories in the case of Alex Ocasio-Cortez in New York, which we all remember, as well as rising stars like Stacey Abrams in Georgia really take the reins. So it's an interesting trend across the country. Here to help us dig through it is Jamie Harrison, DNC Associate Chair and Counselor. He is the former chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party and the author of Climbing the Hill, How to Build a Career in Politics and Make a Difference. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's such a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. So what do you think? Is 2018 the year of the woman or is it the year of color? I think it's both. I think we're
2: going to see uh, a lot of diversity this year in terms of the new crop of elected officials. Just unprecedented numbers of women who are running for office, particularly in my home state here in South Carolina, you're also seeing a lot of people of color particularly in the Democratic side, pushing back on trends and the rhetoric that we're hearing from the White House and from Capitol Hill.
1: I mean, Jimmy, that was my question is, why do you think that this is happening, uh, particularly in the the Democratic Party right now?
2: I say it sort of tongue in cheek, but in some aspects, Donald Trump's the best recruiter for the Democratic Party that we've had in a long time. Uh, He has really galvanized a lot of folks and energized people and have demonstrated why it's important to have a strong Democratic Party, why it's important to be able to push back on Republican and Republican policy and orthodoxy.
1: You know, I I, I know that there is um, a, f- a feeling among some African-American Democrats that for a long time that the party has taken this constituency, this community for granted, that it just assumes that Uh, African-Americans will always vote for Democrats, that there isn't much outreach done, that the party doesn't look to that community for its candidates. To what degree is that still true? I mean, how much more work do Democrats have to do to to try to correct a problem like that?
2: I think that is still a problem in uh, in various parts of the country. Um, And what we've been trying to do at the DNC is to make sure that in terms of our state parties, uh, we create more awareness We have launched a number of programs in order to particularly galvanize African-American women. So right now we're doing a seat at the table tour all across the country where we're speaking with groups of African-American women, making sure that they're educated on the issues, training them if they're interested in running for office. But it's these type of initiatives that are really, really important. And the DNC can't do it alone. We are encouraging our other sister organizations to also make sure that we're investing in these communities. I'm so proud of what the DGA has done as it relates to uh, investing in Stacey Abrams' candidacy and and making sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to really get her across the finish line uh, this November.
1: But, Jamie, I mean, the obvious question is, why did it take to the year 2017 or 2018 for that to happen. I mean, it, it, what, what was happening in 2006 where people weren't, weren't cognizant enough to, to recognize that?
2: Yeah, it's an evolution of the party. You know, both parties are constantly changing. And I mean, listen, I, I was the first African-American elected state party chair here in South Carolina in 2013. I mean, so the question is, why did it take until 2013 to have a black chair in, in the state of South Carolina with a population that's a third the third African-American? And the party is changing. And I think putting people of color in positions, Ben Ray Lujan, who's a Latino American, is the chair. And so he's very sensitive about making sure that there's a seat at the table for all groups and that their input is necessary and important.
0: Is there a particular that surprised you that supported a candidate of color, or the person that's come out of nowhere this year as you, as you look around the country?
2: I mean, to be quite honest, I was surprised by Georgia. It really was. And to have Stacey come out and to come out as strong as she did out of that primary was a real indication that there's been some progress made, made uh, in that state. And South Carolina is so similar to Georgia in many ways. Georgia is you know, always a few steps ahead of us in terms of getting to the finish line because they have Atlanta, which is this huge mecca. We don't have a city like that here in South Carolina, but... Uh, I, Just very, very surprised by what they've done there. But we are even seeing seeing some progress in places like Tennessee, where for the first time in a long time, the county where Memphis is, an African-American was elected the county mayor. And that just happened just recently. And so, you know, there's progress being made all across the country. And Daniel, you know, I'm a big believer that the, the future of the Democratic Party is coming back down south. If the Democratic Party is gonna be a majority party again, its fortunes are, will have to be tied to how well we start to do in Southern states. And that also means investing in these communities where you have some extremely talented people, but the party has just neglected for the past decade or
0: so. Jamie, is there a risk too? Because you know, as, as you well know from the math in the South, you can't do it on minority voters alone. And so, when someone like Stacey Abrams runs to the left on a variety of issues, does that maybe risk some of those old, old-time Southern Democrats who, who were you know, sort of the bastion of the party back in the day? Well, I think the first step is you have to compete in the area. We haven't been competing
2: in the South, 13 states we've just ignored. We didn't put any money, we didn't put any resources, we didn't train anyone, we didn't support the candidates. So the first way that we can really see change, and we've seen this in North Carolina, is start investing, start talking to the people, start giving them a contrast on the issues. Right now, the demographics in the South are changing very, very quickly. The white population is getting older, and there's a very big boom in terms of the Latino population in the South. Still relatively small, but it's growing at an astronomical rate. And then you're also getting reverse migration from the Midwest and the Northeast of African-Americans who, a generation of them, their parents went up for opportunities are now coming back down South. So you have all of these different population trends that are taking place. And it's important for the Democratic Party. And at the same time, you have young white voters who may not say that they are a Democrat, but when you ask them where they are on particular issues, their values are aligned with the Democratic Party. So there's a battle right now in terms of where young white millennials going in the South. Are they gonna be Republicans like their parents or are they gonna take a second look at the Democratic Party? The only way that it happens for the, the latter to happen is for the National Democratic Party to start investing in, the, in this region so that we can get a foothold with those young white voters
1: are there still any voices in the Democratic Party, because this was certainly true even in, in recent history, who privately and bluntly and perhaps crassly would say, you know what, when you boil it down, people are still hesitant to to vote for an African-American, white voters still hesitant to vote for an African-American. Are there still those voices in the Democratic Party? Are people still arguing that even quietly?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, listen, there were voices when I moved down here to South Carolina and wanted to be chair. and. And there were folks saying, well, I don't know if an African-American chair can raise the amount of money that we need in order to compete. Excuse my language. That's BS. Uh, I was able to raise just as much money as Dick R. Putin, who was a chair before me, and Carol Fowler, who was a chair before him. You still have these people who don't believe that an African-American can win statewide in the South. That is crazy. If, uh, if Republicans are going to vote for Tim Scott, who is, uh, Last time I saw, it, it was just as dark as me, and most of the time, people think that he, he and I are the same people. Uh, if they're able to vote for Tim Scott in South Carolina or Nikki Haley in South Carolina, why wouldn't a Democrat, an African American Democrat, be able to win? I mean, the problem is white Democrats haven't been able to win. So, so maybe we should try something a little different.
0: You were there in two thousand six with with the wave election that year against Bush. Does this feel similar to you? And if the Democrats do take over the House, is there room for the, that big class of blue dogs that were elected in 2006?
2: Yeah, in, in, the thing I often say, Daniel, is that the Democratic Party is its greatest strength is diversity. And at the same time, that strength comes with a lot of challenges because when you have a diverse group, you have to, you have to work with them all to, to get them on the same page.
0: Well, uh, Jamie, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, and uh, appreciate you being with us.
2: Oh, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, I really appreciate it. And again, my book comes out September twenty fifth, Five in the Hill. <laughs>
1: sounds sounds good. Hey, thanks, Jamie. You know, Daniel it was a really interesting discussion with Jamie. You know, I felt like a lot of what he was saying was the Democratic Party has made a lot of progress. Recruiting and African American and candidates of color, and talking with that community, but uh, there's still some work to be done. I think.
0: Yeah, is it it's very interesting to hear him talk about the institutional resistance that that's still there, and his comment about. Basically how, well though all the white men have lost in the South, so we might as well try something new. Yeah, it stuck out uh, to me
1: too. That that, <laughs> that line that line stuck out to me. And and you know, we talked That's about pull quote. that was a quote. That was a pull quote. And we we talked about, you know, we talked about Stacey Abrams a lot. It's of course part of our ground game project, the Georgia governor's race. But I remember, I mean, some of that argument even bubbling up in, in her primary against Stacey Evans, who was a, a white candidate. And there was, uh, was sometimes it was maybe just text. There was also subtext that Stacey Evans would be able to win over white candidates in a way that Stacey Abrams would fall short. You know, I mean, it's part of the reason that this Georgia governor's race, like we said, is is really, I think, probably the number one gubernatorial race in the country right now in terms of the national attention. Anyway, the reason I don't think there's any any doubt about that.
0: Yeah, and then Abrams, eighty percent of the vote in the primary showed where Georgia voters fall uh, on that <laughs> yes. question. at least the Democrats
1: with 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 uh, some emphasis there. Yeah. Um, all right, so it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the lightning round. But with a twist, this time around, you have 30 seconds, Daniel, to present your case for a person or an issue or a fact that's being overlooked right now. And at the end of that 30 seconds, there is going to be a buzzer. I'm just warning you now, there's going to be a buzzer that's going to signal your time is up. So, Joy Marie, can can we get the clock ready? Got the clock. All right, Daniel, you're on. All right.
0: Today, I'm talking about Joe Sandberg. This is uh, a founding investor, a blue apron, a progressive activist slash philanthropist type. Uh, He's 39 years old, kind of presents as almost an anti-Trump bearded. He came to our uh, festival, Ozzy Fest, last month in Manhattan wearing a t-shirt. And his big issue for 2020 is poverty. So he's going around focusing on uh, this issue, including stops in Iowa and New Hampshire to try to build up the, uh, the issue of poverty. He comes from a, a low-income background before he made a bunch of money on Wall Street. And Sandberg isn't saying whether he's running for anything at all or what he will be running for, but uh, he's definitely a guy to keep an eye on. He's already made an impact uh, in California politics with his PAC uh, in promoting uh, more people signing up for the earned income tax credit. Uh, it's a really interesting issue, uh, Alex, and one that I don't think we've seen poverty take on a kind of national uh, attention really since the John Edwards 2008 campaign in terms of presidential politics anyway. So Joe Sandberg, keep an eye out for
1: him. So I think maybe we should extend the time limit to about one minute there. That said, let me let me see if I could do, do I this. Do get in...
0: guest host courtesies for that? Is I think that you get a
1: guest host courtesy for that. Andrea, okay. if you're listening, you will receive no such courtesy next week. Okay, jordan Maria, are, are we ready? We're ready. Clock start? Okay. My lightning round is Carrie Evelyn Harris. Who is she? She is running for Senate in Delaware, a progressive challenger to the incumbent Democrat Tom Carper. Look, if you're looking for the next Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, look no further. It's not to say that she's win, but a lot of attention is being paid to her among progressive activists. Carrie Evelyn Harris, a name to watch. Did I get it? That was, that was 18 seconds. Boom. boom.
0: <laughs> so maybe we it. can keep it to 30 seconds. Boom.
1: I, I was, I was just like panicked. And one the of us is entire. concise. The other was, is not. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, well, next time. Hey, Daniel, it has been a genuine pleasure co-hosting with you for the first time. I'm just thrilled for the promotion from, from guest to guest host. It's just, it's a, it's a true honor. You, you should be honored. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyond the bubble pod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want
0: to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or rating.
1: Talk to you next week.